When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA Podcast, and today's episode is one that really is like the epitome of the name Punk Rock NBA. This is an interview with Mike Cesario, the founder and CEO of Liquid Death. You may be familiar with them. You've seen their cans. You've probably seen the ads for it on Facebook and Instagram, the tall boy can of water with like the edgy rock kind of graphics on it and funny marketing slogans. He's the guy behind that. And you should know this is not a small company. They've raised, I think like $33 million now from a bunch of very smart people. And in this episode, we talk about exactly how he did that. And most importantly, how you can do it too. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that everybody should try to take this route necessarily, but one of the things I want people to understand, people who listen to this podcast, is that when you hear these headlines about how a company raised millions or tens of millions of dollars and sold it for a billion dollars and all that stuff, like you can be part of that if you want to. The skills that you have learned being in a band or doing a podcast or any of the other things that you probably do if you listen to this, like the stuff that you learn from that are the exact same skills that will enable you to start a company and potentially raise millions of dollars if that's what you want to do. Mike and Liquid Death are a perfect example of that. So if that sounds at all interesting to you, then I think you are going to really enjoy this episode. Before we get into it, I wanted to mention a couple things. Number one, the Punk Rock NBA newsletter. That's a weekly email that I send out that links to any content I put out on my main channel, my second channel, the podcast, any you know media, press appearances I might have done, as well as links to what Deanna and I are listening to, watching, and reading. There's never any spam or ads. We'll never sell or give away your email address or anything like that. It's just an email we'll send out once a week. There's a link to that in the show notes if you want to sign up. And also, if you really like us, you can support us on Patreon. That is the way that we are able to do this show. That's how we were able to hire Deanna, the producer and editor who makes all this happen. So if you're interested in supporting us on Patreon, there's a link to that in the show notes as well. But before we get into this episode, let me answer a few of your questions. First up, from Luke Smith, when you talked about the Deftones guitars being a flat earther, you focused more on mental health. I think that's a good way to look at it, but don't you think we should also pay attention to how social media exploits mental health through advertising rather than it just being a music industry fan base issue? I know that wasn't the point of your other video. I just wanted to know your take on it. Okay, so what he's referring to here is an interview a month or two ago where Stefan Carpenter from Deftones came out as a flat earther. And he was given several opportunities to walk this back in other interviews, and he didn't. In fact, he just doubled down on it. So we shouldn't give him a pass and say that this is something he just said, you know, flippantly for a joke or anything like that. This seems to be what he actually believes. Now, there's a few things here that I want to unpack separately. First of all, the idea of it not being something that is specific to music industry, the music industry or, or music fans. And I really want to push back on this. 
my point in that video was that the music industry really is uniquely full of dysfunctional, troubled people who have issues like this. And by that, I mean, let's say that you work for Procter & Gamble on Swiffer and Febreze and stuff like I used to. You're not going to find anybody in any of those meetings who's a flat earther. There's not going to be anyone in those meetings that shows up so stoned that they can't think. There's not going to be a time where, you know, like in the music industry, I'd say there's at least a 50% chance that any given person will just not follow through on something they said that they were going to do because they just didn't feel like it or because they slept in too late or they partied too much last night and they're too hungover to function today. Like this stuff just does not happen in other industries. And obviously you can find one or two examples of that here or there. Like there's outliers everywhere. But the, the pattern is that the music industry is full of very troubled, dysfunctional people who do very troubling, dysfunctional things. And we can't paper over that. We can't make excuses for them or enable them by pretending like that's normal because it's just not. And that's not me judging them. What I want to do is just recognize that that's a thing so that we can help people get the help that they need if they do. And also, if you work with some of these people, like understand that this is bullshit. You should not have to put up with this stuff. So that's the first thing I want to recognize. Like, Let's not paper over this. This is not okay. Second thing is, what is the role of the social media platforms and what role does advertising play here? Well, advertising does play a role here, but I'm a little hesitant to place the blame on the social media platforms because really all they do is give people what they want and people demonstrate what, what they want by clicking on things and watching things and reading things. And I've talked about this in some of my other videos. There's a thing called negativity bias. Basically in psychology, this means that people respond more strongly to negatively charged information than they do positively charged information. This is a very well-documented thing in psychology. You can look it up and if you look at the kind of headlines, you look at the videos and, and articles and stuff like that that get shared a lot, you'll see what I'm talking about. People want negative shit. They want to be angry. I wish that I could remember exactly what the name of the study was, but Brett Weinstein was talking about this on his podcast the other day. There was a study that people did that basically looked at what kind of emotions people experience in different situations and which emotions they sought out. And what they found is that the brain gives you a release of, you know, whatever feel-good chemicals they are, dopamine, serotonin, I don't know what they are, but they gave you some of the feel-good chemicals when you experience this feeling of like mild irritation and outrage. Like the brain actually wants you to be slightly annoyed and like pissed off, which is fucked up. But if you think about it, that perfectly matches what we see on social media. People share articles that make them mad. People want to talk about things that they don't like. You know, this is not the fault of the social media platforms. This is the fault of users. This is what users want. Now, you could argue that the social media platforms have some responsibility to fight against that, and I think that's a valid argument, but they're going to be pushing against the river because what people want is to be outraged. So, you know, I would not point the finger necessarily at the social media platforms, or at least for every one finger you point at the platforms, I think you got to point three or four fingers at the users and probably one or two at yourself, which means you probably have six or seven fingers on your hand, and that's another discussion. But anyway, that's my thought. I don't think it's a good idea to excuse this kind of like distorted thinking that Stephen Carpenter was doing there. I don't think it's a good idea to place all the blame for this stuff on the social media platforms, but I do think it is fair to ask the kind of questions that you're asking, Luke. So thank you for your question. From Ben, AKA Necrophile. Thoughts on underground metal artists wanting to stay underground. So I get comments like this pretty often on any video where I mention metal and some kind of commercial success, I get comments from people saying like, well, maybe these bands don't want to be popular. Why should you assume that they do? And I think that's a totally valid point. Most of my content assumes that people want some level of commercial success and not everybody does. Some people just want to make a painting and hang it on their own wall in their own house and never show it to anybody. And the reason that they're making this piece of artwork is because it makes them feel good to make stuff. And they don't really care whether anybody else sees it or anybody gives them money for it or anything like that. They're creating purely because they want to create. 
and that is 100% valid. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think it's great. In fact, I wish that I was like that because that would make life a lot easier in many ways. But then there's other people, I think of it as a, as a spectrum of kind of art versus commerce. There's people on the other end of the spectrum who are motivated purely by commercial success, purely by money. They don't care at all about their own creative satisfaction. All they want is to make as much money as possible. And so everything they create is with that in mind. That would be people who, I don't know, like kids bop. Like, I don't think anybody is putting out kids bop because they think it's like some great piece of art. I think they realize that's something they can make them a lot of money off of. But most people I think are somewhere in the middle where they are creating for both their own creative satisfaction and because they want to make some money. And where you fall on that spectrum is up to you. It's not my job to tell you where you should be because I think that's your own choice to make. But what I would say is that I think in the case of music, pretty much everybody wants an audience, right? Like, I think maybe people don't care that much about money per se, especially like if you play metal, I think you go into that kind of understanding, you're probably not gonna make a lot of money off of this, but you would like people to hear your work, right? I mean, that's the whole point of putting music out is you want people to hear it. So I don't really think it's honest intellectually honest anyway, when these bands say that, well, we don't care about popularity. We don't care about fame. Well, yeah, you don't care about fame per se. Like you don't expect to be, you know, the next big thing at the top of the billboard charts, but all things being equal, you would like more people to hear your music than not. Right now, I guess where it gets tricky is when people aren't honest with themselves about that, where people publicly say, I don't care about popularity, but in their head, they're saying, wow, I wish we were more popular because then you're sort of painting yourself into a corner where you can't do the things that would actually make you happy because you've told the world you don't care about being popular and therefore you will look like a hypocrite and an asshole if you do things that make it look like you do care about being popular. But in your heart and in your head, you're saying, wow, I wish we were really more popular. So ultimately what it comes down to, I think, is goal setting. If you're happy with the results you're getting, then don't change anything, right? If you get three people coming to your shows and eight people a month listening to your stuff on Bandcamp and you're happy with that, then don't change anything. That's great. You know, who am I to say what your goals should be? On the other hand, if you see those numbers and you're like, fuck, I wish we had some more people at our shows. I wish we had more people buying our stuff on Bandcamp. Well, then maybe you should change some things. So the basic principle here, I think, is do your actions align with your words and with your thoughts? Like when all these three things are aligned, you'll be happy and you'll see success. When one of those things is not aligned with the others, that is where I think you're going to feel some friction and friction doesn't feel good. So if you're an underground metal artist and you're happy staying underground, great, good for you. Or if you're like most underground metal artists, you're happy to stay underground, but you'd really like to have just a little bit more popularity. I think you should do you know, the things that it takes to become more popular. And then I think you'll be more honest with yourself and more honest with the world and you'll probably feel a little bit better. So thanks, Ben. I hope that that was helpful. And with that out of the way, let's get into this awesome episode. Mike, welcome to the podcast. This is where I put on my podcast voice. It's a good podcast voice. Welcome aboard, Mike. <laughs> so we were just uh, talking uh, a minute ago about kind of how you got your start uh, in entrepreneurship, which is something that I've talked about a lot on my channel is just like how, you know, even though people don't necessarily think of a band as running a small business, that's exactly what they're doing. I cut you off. Can you pick up where you left off? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think, you know, I definitely learn most of the way I think about things from, you know, being in a band and being in bands and around bands in, in high school and, and beyond. And then, you know, I think I was always into art from an early age. So, you know, graphic design just became this thing that I did because we had to design t-shirts and show flyers and stuff. But then I didn't even realize until maybe senior year of high school that graphic design was actually a job that you can have, you know? So I felt like it was sort of like the, the hardcore profession was like, you go into graphic design. So I went to school for design and then, uh, ended up switching over to advertising because I just was way more intrigued by what the advertising kids were doing because it was all about stuff being funny and it was conceptual and it wasn't about pixel pushing or designing a 60 page book. Like that wasn't yeah. my, how my brain works so much. So then yeah, I switched to advertising, worked for 
you know, a bunch of advertising agencies for years, became a creative director. And I think like you learn a lot from different businesses that you work on in advertising because typically companies don't come to really great advertising agencies because they're doing well. That's usually like they're fucked because of something and they're like, <laughs> right. we need to be relevant. We need the best of the best to help yeah. people give a shit. Um, so I think it's interesting to see all these different business problems across all kinds of industries from like, you know, Domino's pizza to Volkswagen to DiGiorno frozen pizzas to Netflix. Like you just learn a lot about, or at least I did, like, you know, I was always really interested in the, in the business side as much as like, you know, the creative part of it. Like, so I think for me, I was always looking for something to build on my own at some point. The first thing I actually created long before Liquid Death, I was only a few years out of school. I created my own liquor company that I named after a hot water music song. <laughs> and it was called Western Grace. And uh, we were trying to make brandy cool because I think what mm -hmm. I saw in marketing that worked really well, working on brands like Virgin America. And I always thought Richard Branson was such a genius. And I was really into like his approach of Virgin would go into a super stale, boring category and make the one cool, awesome thing in it that just stood out like a sore thumb. And you're like, why did it take this long for somebody to just not suck? Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, I started thinking that way and I was like, oh, I'm going to create my own thing. You know, I want to make my own thing. What should I make? I think I took the advice um, that I got, which was, you know, if you're going to build your own business, do something that you feel like you have an advantage in over everybody else, either because you love it more, you know more about it, you care more about it, um, you have an insane amount of connections in it somehow that other people don't have. So for me at that time, it was, uh, it was spirits. I was like super into whiskey and like, I would go to bars and like, I wanted to well, try. I'm an alcoholic. So this is a natural <laughs> fit for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I just wanted to try every different kind of spirit. Like it, like it was like, I want to try the weird stuff from Italy. I want to try every kind of bourbon. I want to try scotches. I want to try tequilas and mezcals. Like I was really into that. And, you know, at the time, you know, my brother was a bartender, a good friend of mine was a mixologist. My other good friend was like a salesperson for a big wine distributor. So I'm like, all this stuff is pointing towards booze. So then I started thinking about booze and I started looking for, I literally said, what is the one category of booze where there's not a single cool brand? And it's like, it was really hard. Like there wasn't many options. It's like, oh, there's a million cool whiskeys, a million cool vodkas, a million cool tequilas, rums. There's cool. Seems like every few years, a certain kind of liquor becomes like the cool thing where everyone starts up all these brands. Yeah. The one thing that I stumbled upon was brandy. And it was like, there was not, I mean, brandy, literally there was dust on the bottles in the liquor store. <laughs> yeah. And once I actually tried brandy, I had never, it was one of the few spirits I haven't actually tried. Once I tried brandy, I was like, oh, wow, this is actually a lot like whiskey, just a little bit sweeter and without the burn. I was like, why does it like, if whiskey is like the fastest growing spirit in the, in the country, how come nobody's drinking this thing that's almost exactly like it that most people might even like more? So then you look at it, it's like, you know, you learn about cognac, how that's a type of brandy from France. So all the brandy is trying to replicate this French luxury bullshit that's been going on. Oh, I didn't know that. And uh, so all these American brandy companies are just trying to look like French cognac, but like all brandy is, is basically whiskey that's made from wine, essentially. So there's so many different kinds of grapes that people were using to make it with and all that. I can see how this sort of leads in the direction of liquid death. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's kind of like, okay, here's this interesting place where nobody's doing something cool. It's something that people actually would like. You have to like the product at the end of the day. You know, it's going to be hard if you're trying to sell asparagus juice, like that's a tough sell, no matter how cool the branding is. <laughs> right. But um, yeah, we looked at that and I, you know, started you know, building this brand of like, okay, what would be a cool name for it? And went through a bunch of different names and like, you know, we looked through and eventually like Hot Water Music was one of the bands I grew up on, huge fan. And, you know, there was a song Western Grace and I was like, oh, that's a, what a great name for a brandy that's made in Northern California. Uh, 
So, you know, we kind of, I built the, here's what the bottle would look like. Here's the name, worked with some buddies on, who did illustration to do like a logo type thing. And all the stuff that I knew was like second nature to me, design stuff, built this bottle, built like a deck or a presentation. Cause in advertising, we used to say that we're really in the deck business. <laughs> right. It's like, right. all you do is make, you know, $200,000 decks for clients. They don't actually end up making right. half of the shit you present no. them. So I was really good at making some decks. shitty version of your deck. Yeah. So I made a nice deck of like, Brandy's this untapped thing. And here's my take on it. You know, I went and found there was a distillery in Northern California. And that's what I did. Like I'm literally using Google and LinkedIn to say like spirits industry consultants. And you find some guy that, you know, used to work for some big company. Now he's consulting, call him up, pay him hundred bucks an hour to talk to you for a little bit and just tell me all about brandy. How's it made? Where can I get it? He'll be like, Oh, actually there's really only like two distilleries that I know of in the U S that make brandy. One of them's in Ukiah and that's what, here's what they're called. So I hit them up, came and presented them like, Hey, look, here's my idea for this thing. And they're a bunch of old guys who've been making some of the best brandy in the world for like 20 years. And they got all excited. Like, Oh, finally someone wants to make brandy. Cool. And it's like, they're like, yeah, we're into this. Like, so then I went on LinkedIn and started looking for spirit industry people who worked on brands I really respected, like Sailor Jerry Rum and Hendrix Gin. Um, they were two of the like fastest growing new spirits brands of all time. And they were done by a dude in Philadelphia, a agency called Quaker City Mercantile. Found former people that worked for that company on LinkedIn, literally cold called them told them about my idea. Hey, I have a distillery that's even interested in making it. Now all of a sudden they're really interested. They come on board. And then before you know it, it's like, Hey, uh, you need to move back to Philadelphia if we're going to do this. So like move back to Philly and we started building a brandy company, work for an ad agency during the day to pay the bills. And that was like kind of my first real kind of like feel of like an entrepreneurial venture and alcohol is probably the most pain in the ass hard thing you could possibly want to make because of all the legal red tape you have to go through. Like I think in the first year of Western Grace, we spent more just on attorneys and legal paperwork stuff than we spent on liquid death in like the first two years, maybe, you know, like it, it, it was really crazy. It was a great learning experience kind of going through it with a really difficult brand first, you know, a product, I should say a difficult product first. And to your point earlier, Everything that you described there is the same way that I would go about it if I was in a band and we wanted to book a show in St. Louis in December. That's the same thing I would do. Just go find people and hit them up and keep doing it until someone says yes. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's people think it's so hard to take the first few steps. You're surprised at how often people do want to just help you. You know, it's like people, I mean, yeah, there's obviously assholes in the world you run into, but like, by and large, like if you've got a decent idea or a decent band, like if you're not the worst band anybody's ever heard, that's, but it's like, hey, we're a good band. We've got a good demo. Um, we're nice enough. If you reach out to people, like people, even if they can't help you, they'll put you in contact with someone who maybe could, you know, like people want to help people. I think that's what I couldn't, you know, say is a more important thing in getting something off the ground is just being willing to just research and find people know more about what you're trying to do than you do or are trying or a part of what you think you need to do because sometimes it's like you might go chasing the wrong path and you, you don't even realize you're going down the total wrong path like start off by like if you're a band that's going to book a tour and never been on tour like you'd probably start off talking to someone who's toured a little bit to be like hey mm -hmm. what, what's kind of the move here okay well don't even waste your time with these kind of venues like yeah don't even waste your time with these cities and it's like, have someone give you some sense of like, okay, now I feel like I know a little bit more. And then you start reaching out to the right people versus like, you know, wasting your time going down the, the, the wrong path. So where did you kind of come up with the idea of Liquid Death's kind of brand direction with the rock imagery and stuff? You know, I, th I feel like everybody else in any kind of lifestyle product is always going towards like, you know, hip hop culture what made you land on this as far as, you know, the rock kind of angle? So I was, you know, when I was thinking of the idea for Liquid Death, you know, I knew that I wanted to do, at the time, I was working for an agency in uh, 
Chattanooga, Tennessee, and we were doing some really funny marketing for the organic industry. And we were some of the first people to actually do funny, irreverent marketing in, in the organic world. Typically, all the organic marketing was like, our family farmers. Or, right, you know, right. you know, like we were like, no, let, let, so we made some funny stuff for, it was an organic protein shake. And uh, we did this campaign called Save the Bros. And it was like this idea, if the bros keep eating all this chemical protein powder, they're going to die off. And then who's going <laughs> to who's gonna bring the beer pong table? And like, you know, yeah. so we this funny idea, like make them, you know, give them an organic protein shake and keep them alive. And it got all this, you know, recognition. And it, it was kind of an unlock moment for me where I was like, oh yeah, how come there isn't more funny, irreverent marketing in the world of health food? It's all in junk food. It's like, mm-hmm. if you ask most people, what is the funniest advertising campaigns you can remember of the last 10 years? Most people will either tell you Dos Equis, Bud Light, Skittles, Snickers, Red Bull, Cheetos. You know, it's like Wendy's. Wendy's. Yeah, it's all just kind of crap. Yeah. Whereas all the healthy stuff, like they don't, they don't play in that space. So I felt like that was a, and, and I've always been into health, you know, like, you know, I was, you know, I was a vegetarian for probably six years from when I was 16 to 22, you know, even still, like, I'm not a vegetarian anymore, but I eat vegetarian and I eat vegan, like a lot of the time, but then I'll still have a steak or great barbecue every once in a while, you know, Sure. but it's like, I always care about health. I haven't drank soda in decades. Like I drink a lot of water and I feel like a lot of people in the world of rock and, and, you know, my friends and, and that kind of space, like they're into health things too, you know, like so many of my friends now were, or they're sober now, or they're vegan, you know, like, so I, I knew that, okay, I want to make a healthy beverage. So water was sort of the thing I thought of is like, most people don't drink enough water. And like, you know, I knew that there were certain times where it's like, even if I went to a bar, yeah, I might have like a whiskey, but then I kind of want to just have a water after that for a little bit. You know, I don't want to drink a beer and keep it's like keep yeah. getting more fucked up. But it's like, you know, you can't really just order a water at a bar. It's just kind of <laughs> weird. But anyway, it was just like, okay, there's something interesting about water. People don't drink enough of it. It's a huge category. So once you then start putting your business hat on, it's like with very little differentiation. Right, exactly. And and that's the other way I thought about it was of all the the verticals you could be in for a beverage, which one is most driven by brand and marketing. You know, there's certain other things with very functional ingredients that are driven more mm-hmm. by like, oh, I just want this protein powder. I don't give a shit what the tub looks like, you know? Yeah. Um, but water definitely was, is a very almost solely brand driven kind of category. So I knew that brand and marketing being my strength, I could have an advantage in that category. It also checks my box of healthy, like people should be drinking more water. You know, especially it's like, you're not going to get people to stop drinking energy drinks or stop having coffee, but it's like, maybe mix some more water into your day and it's, that's just going to be better for you. So then it's like, okay, it's going to be a water. And then it's like, okay, well, what, what should it look like? And it's like, instantly I was like, it should be in a tall boy can because that just feels cool. Mm-hmm. There's nothing, all water is packaged in plastic. And I, a couple of times I had a can water. Like I think I had one on an airplane once. I had, you know, some of the monster tour water at Warp Tour yeah, like right. years ago. And then there's this Indian restaurant up the street for me and they serve all their water in like these aluminum cups. And it was just like, there's something about like ice cold metal drinking water out of it that's just more refreshing. Mm-hmm. And then I start like, I'm, I'm always asking questions. And it's like, yeah, how come nobody prefers to drink a beer out of a plastic bottle? You know, nobody, nobody gets handed a, a nice cold craft beer in a yeah. in a can, and someone you're goes. You're oh, if you go to a baseball game or something. Yeah, they give they you, a, you a plastic beer, and you're like, "Fuck." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was like, "Okay, definitely going to be in a can because I, you know, I, I've always thought that the canned water was was kind of interesting. The few times I've had it, and then the more you look into like why it isn't in the can, it's all just marketing perception stuff. Oh, people, if they can't see that the water is clear, they'll never buy it. It's like. Really? <laughs> you don't see what your soda looks like. You don't see what your, you know. Right. So it was like, okay, definitely want to be in a can. And then the more I started researching about cans, it was like, oh, cans are infinitely recyclable. And 
you know, and then I started digging more into recycling because most people don't know how recycling works. I, yeah. I learned more about recycling. It's like, oh, plastic bottles are not actually recyclable. It's all bullshit. They don't get recycled. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, that's so interesting. So it was kind of all these things sort of just aligned at once where it's like, yeah, hundred percent cans. It's going to be a tall boy. And then it's like, okay, well, what's the branding going to look like? So it's like, essentially we're, we're sort of competing with energy drinks in a sense. It's like similar customer. And it's like, we want our thing to look even more quote unquote badass than an energy. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? It's like, well, energy drinks have all these bright colors because they're literally marketing them to teens. But in marketing, what we've learned is like, if you want teens to think something is cool, you actually have to position it for people in their twenties because they look yeah. up. So it's like, Mark, like, like if you call anything for teens, that's like a guarantee that no teenager wants to touch it. Right. But maybe like 12 year olds think it's cool. Right. Right. You know, so it's like energy drinks, like, yeah, monster kind of in their heads, they're targeting like teens, but it's really like teenagers don't think, Oh, monster's so cool. But I bet a 12 year old probably thinks monster is really cool. You know? So we kind of were like, okay, well, I want to make it more inspired by beer design, like something that feels like you're not even legally supposed to have it. And it's like beer can't own typefaces and they can't own the color gold. So it's like, right. it's just been so associated with that. It's it's so interesting how in branding, there's all these assumptions that nobody ever questions. Yeah. And then as soon as somebody does, like, so I used to do a bunch of work for Procter & Gamble. Uh, like industrial design stuff. Mm. And this was around when Method came out. You, you're familiar yeah, with that yeah. brand? You know, they do all the real simple stuff. And so, you know, they were doing all these like way over-designed bottles and stuff for, you know, Dawn and Cascade. Like, why can't we do Method? And we always be like, all you have to do is say yes. Like a fucking junior designer could come up with a hundred of those designs in like a day. Yeah. All you have to do is say yes to one of them and you won't because you've told yourself that a dish soap bottle has to look like this. Right. Right. Just like people said, well, you can't put gold on a can of water or uh, it can't be in a can. It can't use gold. And you say, well, why not? And I think that's the other big thing that I was fighting against with liquid death is working for these big companies like Nestle and, you know, and, and I'm sure, you know, like the Procter and Gamble's so much of what they do is like focus group type testing. Or driven by the fact that the CEO was fucking is buddies with the CEO of, you know, the agency and there's this contract and all this bullshit. And so you as the small agency are basically on a suicide mission. Yeah. The idea of testing, like companies who are spending millions, if not billions of dollars on new products and things, it's like they're not going to take too many big risks. So they feel like they're hedging their bets by doing an absurd amount of like testing. But what we've seen is like, when you put people in a room and try to say, what do you think of this thing? What It's like, it, that's not really how people think. Like liquid right. death would have never made it through a focus group. It would have never seen the light of day. People have been like, liquid death, that's a negative name. Why would I ever drink that? Right. And the kind of people that will take two hours out of their day to go to a focus group <laughs> on a Tuesday <laughs> afternoon. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, that's why I think so many of these things, it's like, you know, we, we would work on campaigns for these big, huge brands and they, they, they put their, the campaigns through testing. And it's like the shittiest ideas would somehow pass testing and everybody gets to protect their paychecks by saying, Hey, we tested it. Then they put it in market and it fails because it's like yeah. how people react to something in the real world amongst their normal habits is way different than how someone's reacting to it in a clinical testing environment. So what I always wanted to do with, with Liquid Death was kind of let the mark, like use the power of social media, which is essentially real world market testing that you can do for yep. anything for not a lot of money. So I knew that nobody was going to write me a check for the idea of Liquid Death canned water. You know. So what we did was we got I got my buddy who was a graphic designer to do this like cool Photoshop 3D render of a can. You know, we did some design and, and we iterated design. The first design of the liquid death can looked totally different than what it looks like now. But like we made a Facebook page. That's it. No Twitter, no Instagram, just Facebook. We had the can thing. And then we spent 1500 bucks to shoot a minute long commercial 
where I got a buddy of mine to film it. I wrote the whole script myself. Our other friend, she's an actress. We got her, you know, to come, you know, read, read the spot. We didn't have any real product. So we had to find a similar looking white beer can where she's pouring it like this. So you can only see the top mm -hmm. and you can't tell that it's not the actual can. Um, but yeah, it was like, we had a video, we had some cool renders of the prop of like a product. We did some funny social posts and it was like, that was a really minimal investment to just get something in the market and see how people react to it. And then it was like, you know, maybe four or five months later, the video had about 3 million views. We, you know, the Facebook page had more followers than Aquafina. And were you spending money to promote this or is this all organic? No, we were, we were spending paid, but not a ton. Like over the course of four months to get to 3 million views, maybe I spent, four grand in paid media over over four or five months yeah a thousand bucks a month that's that's nothing nothing and you could see it growing which is why you would you know we kept putting more in it's like oh shit, like it's, it's going so the idea is let me demonstrate by proving in the real world that people are responding to this brand and then i'll take that to people who may want to invest in making this into a real company exactly because at the end of the day for someone to to bet on you they're not just like, not many people are just going to like bet on a horse race. Like they're like, no, you need to prove to me that like you de-risked this in some way. And unlike a software company where you can build an MVP, this is like your version of an MVP. Exactly. You know, because it's a little different with, with a consumer product. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are the Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Yeah! Yeah! Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, you can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. And let's get back into it. One of the biggest questions I had was about kind of why you decided to pursue the venture route because, you know, that comes with a lot of expectations. You know, like the company I worked at before, we raised like $60 million. And I think we really struggled to grow into that valuation. Yeah. You know, it's cool that we had all those resources, but that means you need a big fucking exit in order to make people happy. According to Crunchbase, you've raised 30 million or something like that. Yeah. 
you know, and that $30 million comes with a lot of expectations. Why did you choose to kind of take that route rather than bootstrapping it or family and friends or, you know, kind of keep expectations lower? So every industry is different, but beverage specifically is insanely capital intensive because there's not many other industries like beverage where the big guys like Coke, Pepsi, Anheuser-Busch, Miller Coors, they literally own everything. They own the manufacturing. They own all the trucks that distribute products to the stores, the sales forces. They own exclusive contracts to every stadium and big venue. So like every ski resort even is a Coke mountain or a Pepsi mountain, which means that ski resort uh-huh. is not allowed to sell any products that Coke does not own. So Coke owns like 200 brands. So they've got Smart Water and Dasani. So that's why if you go to a mountain and all you see in the, in the ski lodges, you know, coolers is Dasani and Smart Water. It's because Coke pays them millions of dollars every year where they can only sell Coke products. And they do that, you know, the, the LA Rams stadium, I think Pepsi has something like, you know, I heard something like a $20 million deal with them, but it's going to be a Pepsi stadium so they can only sell Pepsi products. So brands like us, like you can't even get in there. And you need to be able to have that kind of distribution in order for this to be a viable business because you can't really, I, I mean, you can do direct to consumer, but it's shipping cases of water is not the same as like Dollar Shave Club where you're shipping a little razor. Exactly. Yeah. It's like things that are heavy and not super expensive. It's tough for DTC. It's, it's, it's tough for DTC, right? So yeah. And when it comes to like the retail game and beverage, it's like, as you can imagine, it's capital intensive because you have to hire tons of salespeople that are going into every 7-Eleven, every Whole Foods, every Ralph's to make sure that your product is like where it's supposed to be on the shelf. Like, because the reps from Pepsi and Coke and Monster and Red Bull, they're coming in there. They'll move your shit right out of the way, put more of their stuff there. And if you don't have someone checking on that, you could check back in and be like, how come we haven't sold anything at this store for two months? And you realize like, oh, your shit's on the bottom shelf in the wrong section now because someone moved it over there. Man, that grocery seems like such a cutthroat business. It is. And it's, you know, it's all about maintaining velocity. Like they want, they don't want some Mm -hmm. stuff to just sit on the shelf and not move. You know, they've got limited shelf space and you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough game and it's capital intensive. So, so it's one of these go big or go home kind of businesses. Exactly. Yeah. It's like most, you know, I think they said before I started this, I talked to a private equity guy that was like a connection to a friend who had been involved in CPG um, and, and beverage. And he said, yeah, he's like, the most important thing about building a beverage company is like capital efficiency because it's so, so many companies just, they just run out of gas. They just burn through their cash too fast because they're not spending it in the right way. And it's just, it's way too easy to burn through it in this business and not even really get much out of it. So I think, you know, going into it, like was always aware of that. That's why like for us, it's like, you know, people think, oh, liquid death is edgy. We're not being edgy to be edgy. It's solving a very specific business problem that we don't have the money to pay for all the eyeballs that Coke does. The only way we can get those eyeballs is to earn those eyeballs through organic shareability and people wanting to talk about it. And every single thing we make is so interesting that not only do people share it, that press is actually going to probably write about it. And we're going to get those free eyeballs too, because we'll just be crushed by, by the big guys if, if we don't get an insane amount of earned media where we're getting 20x on every marketing dollar we spent, you know. Looking at your cap table, again, according to Crunchbase, I know that's not always accurate, but you don't have kind of the usual tech suspects on there, but you do have some people that obviously get brand like Jen Rubio, uh, Sophia Amoruso, some other people on there, the uh, escapes in my name, but the Dollar Shave Club. Mike Dubin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Some people on there who understand, you know, brand and CPG or, or I guess consumer products very well. How did you kind of get those people involved and what were the challenges you encountered in fundraising? The first venture partner that we brought on was Science Inc., who, um, you know, they they backed Dollar Shave Club from the early days. And they're kind of like a VC slash incubator. So not only do they come in and help you with, you know, capital in the early days, they're also helping you with resources. And, you know, they kind of become a partner for the life of the company. It's a different incubator in that way, where it's not like the typical 
tech incubators where it's like, oh, it's a three month thing and you go in. Yeah. It's like, no, they, they become more of like, they want to be a part, like a venture partner for the life of the company and help you get to the best exit possible. They've been instrumental in helping us with the stuff that I don't know as well. Like, again, it's like- Because there's a lot of real operational shit with something like this that you can't get wrong. Right. And it's like, you know, I, I knew, you know, just going through my stint through all the crazy operational stuff of a, of a spirits company years ago, like I had a pretty good sense of knowing like, okay, I got to have the right operational folks. I'm going to find the right people that their brains work different than I do. But even like science comes in and they help us with operational type insight, a lot of investment type insight. Like, you know, they've raised so much money for so many different brands. They've seen what a terrible investor looks like, what a great investor looks like, what's raising too much, what's raising too little. Mm -hmm. Like they really helped us in that world where we didn't have experience in venture and how that world worked and, and their help, I see. they help guide us there. And uh, a lot of investors that, that have come on board have, you know, a good portion of them come through sciences network in some way that makes sense I, I find it interesting like when i read some of the coverage from the tech industry like on you know on TechCrunch, there's this article you know the joke is on consumers as liquid death raises 23 million it, it's interesting to me how kind of dismissive they are because i i think people in tech don't get brand right. which is really interesting to me and it's like dude this is the same people who backed fucking juicero and theranos <laughs> like yeah <laughs> you know what i mean right right <laughs> It's so interesting to me. And like CPG is not a small business. Like, you know, Kind Bar just sold for $5 billion, I think, a yeah. couple of weeks ago. Yeah. That's a great exit by any standard. So right. it's interesting to me how there's this kind of weird bias against consumer products, even with all those, you know, Dollar Shave Club, obviously an amazing exit. Even though there's, you know, so many of these examples of success, there's this bias against consumer products, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. And I feel like there's something about, and I think we've got some of the pushback on it, like even from the first rounds that were announced that we raised, it's like most business folks, like most businesses are started and founded by business folks, most business or engineering type people, even, you know, like mm -hmm. a, a, there's a lot of overlap between an, entre an entrepreneur skill set and an engineering skill set. Um, engineers and business folks and MBAs tend to think very rationally. It's like, okay, the reason someone is going to buy my product over the next one is because I have this one feature that they do not offer. And it's like what we know in marketing from a psycho psychological standpoint and you know, decades of data is like, actually, no, almost nobody makes rational decisions for, for products. It's exactly. all emotional. You know? And uh, I think when you have these business folks that are putting their blood, sweat, and tears, and everything into their businesses, they're building businesses based on ra like purely rational drivers like technology or a special innovative ingredient or like something that feels like... Switching costs or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, it, it feels like there's a lot of engineering and rationale that goes into creating this like special innovative thing that they hold so much value in but to your point from like theranos or whoever it's like all of that could literally be worth nothing you guys all got fucking fleeced by WeWork, <laughs> right yeah you know yeah like who are you to talk but but and i think that's the thing it's like people are just like they look at liquid death on the surface and they're just like because to your point because they don't realize all the engineering that goes into a brand it's the same thing like it's just understanding psychology yeah it's like every decision on this can went through hours and hours and hours of research and testing and you know just figuring out like what is the perfect thing it's like mm -hmm. and and there's a reason like you know if we would have went five degrees this way tonally it comes off as like super distasteful. No one really thinks it's funny. And then five yep. degrees this way. And it's like cheesy and lame and no one cares. You know, yep. it's like, it's a really hard bullseye to hit. What I really like about your tone. That's like a really, this to me is like the master stroke is that it's post ironic. It's like, Hey, I'm trying to sell you something and we can both laugh at that, but seriously, I want you to buy it. Yeah. And I think as long as what you're asking them to buy is not out of the realm of what they would buy anyway, 
it's okay. It's like, it's one thing if you're like, I want you to buy this thing. And it's like, like, oh, I'm trying to sell you a $500 hairdryer. Right. That's different. But it's like when this cool can that is clearly made by a company with people that you probably would think are kind of cool and maybe you'd want to hang out with. Like, yeah, I'd rather give my $1.69 for this thing than my $1.69 to this like soulless plastic bottle yeah. next to it where I don't perceive there's a huge difference in the quality of the actual liquid. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, such, and especially to an audience who is so skeptical of marketing and so sick of being sold to, you know, on the back of their lifestyle that I think that you sort of, you know, break the fourth wall there to me is actually the key to earning their trust. Totally. And I think what, what I'm trying to do with, with Liquid Death at the core of all this funny stuff that we do is I'm basically drawing on my whole history of marketing for big giant companies. And I'm just making fun of all the things that people hate about marketing. I couldn't tell you how many presentation decks we've showed to companies where we show all the data that basically says people hate everything you're putting out there. Nobody cares. And not only does no one care about you, the big reason is because there's 10,000 other companies doing the same thing that you do, shoving it at them every single day. And it was like, there was a recent uh, poll on something where it was like least trustworthy professions in America. At the bottom of the list was advertising executives. Like right above that yep. was politicians. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. Uh, so at the end of the day, like, we're trying to be very clear that like we hate marketing as much as you probably do. And that is like the one, I think, thread between whether you're a metalhead or a Silicon Valley tech guy or whoever, that's one common thread that we all share is like nobody likes marketing in the general sense. Like everyone hates when they got to wa watch the commercial before the YouTube video. Everyone hates the commercial breaks. Everybody hates the shit in their feed. Everybody hates the fucking text messages we get constantly yeah. now. A, a nice little kind of story was my younger brother works in the tech industry in Northern California. Him and I are very different. He tucked in shirt guy, two kids, literally a white picket fence, was a wrestler in, in, in high school. He wears liquid death shirts around. And he's like, I'm not wearing a liquid death shirt to try to signal to somebody, hey, look, I'm cool. I like metal and punk. He's like, I'm trying to signal to people that I hate marketing. And I was like, I thought that was really interesting. Like, I hadn't thought about it that way. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's kind of what it is. It's like, uh -huh. everybody can get behind. Yes, I'm rooting for this company that finally gets that I hate everything else that is getting put into my feed or my TV or my whatever. And like, it almost doesn't matter if you like skulls or if you like metal. It's just like, no, I like this approach where it finally feels like, somebody's not trying to like trick me or be a salesman in my face, you know? I forget the exact headline, but my favorite one, uh, favorite liquid death ad that I saw, I want to say it was just a picture of the can in front of a mountain. I think it said, this is stupid. Don't buy it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, that, it was, uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is dumb. Don't buy this. And it's like, that came from this idea of simple psychology 101. It's like, your brain fills in so much of your day. And there's actually a really smart designer, uh, love the guy, his name's John Bielenberg. And he has this book called Think Wrong. And it's like his approach to the way to get to truly innovative ideas is to actually start out by saying, what is the stupidest possible solution for this problem? Like start there and you'll automatically be closer to truly innovative ideas because mm -hmm. your brain just wants to fill in based on things it's seen before, or, you know, you know, he brings up, he's like, you know, when you're walking down the street in Times Square, there's so many things coming at there's, there's people, there's ads, there's sounds, there's stuff in the street. Your brain is like filling in most of it because it's impossible for it to focus on everything at once. So it's looking for things that don't fit in. So like in that whole mess of craziness, if there was like, I forget the example he uses, he says like, if there's somebody walking a little dog with a little top hat on, you're probably going to notice that yeah. before you notice anything else. And it's like, it's the same thing in marketing. It's like everything that feels familiar where our brains have been trained to read is something in mm -hmm. ad 
and ignore. So it's like when you're all of a sudden scrolling and you see this is dumb, don't buy this. You're like, <laughs> it's enough to just get them to stop for more than two seconds. And maybe the next thing they read is enough to get them to do something further. Mm-hmm. And it was like, yeah, the idea behind that ad was like, okay, if we want to make a headline like this, what's the payoff for why we do it? It can't just be like, oh, this is dumb. Don't buy this. Uh-huh, right. Get it? But then we right. thought of this whole funny thing. It's like, well, since we want to murder your thirst, maybe your thirst is really afraid. And now your thirst is hacking into our social media backend oh, and trying okay. to trick people to not buy oh. liquid death. So it was like, this is dumb. Don't buy this. And you read the post copy and it's like, unfortunately, it looks like your thirst has hacked into our system and is changing the headlines to our ads because it really doesn't want you to buy us. So it's like, you just find these clever ways to like take people on a journey and like, sure, just make it not ours features this much more of this and leading brands are, you know, are nowhere near, you know, it's just like all that stuff. It just gets instantly skip. You don't even have the chance. Well, to your point about all the details on the can and those ads and stuff like that. As a CEO, as much as I'm sure you would love to geek out on all those things, you can't give 100% of your attention to 100% of the things in the business. How do you decide where to allocate your attention and how much of that goes to those details in the creative? I mean, I'm definitely very involved with the creative, even as a CEO. And I think, you know, as I've learned, you know, meeting with tons of different CEOs, like every CEO is different. and you know, there's CEOs who are super operational CEOs who then hire really smart marketing people. And then there's people like me who are more marketing brand driven CEOs, because at the end of the day, you know, Liquid Death is more of a, a marketing and brand company than it is, you know, a water company. I'm definitely more brand creative driven, surrounded myself with really smart operational supply chain kind of folks who can make sure that, you know, all that stuff is, is uh, as smart as it can be. They can shake their head at your weird graphics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, whatever, Mike. But yeah, you know, I, I stay really involved with it. But to your point, you know, being a CEO, I definitely cannot spend all my time in the weeds of, of creative things. So, you know, that is the tough part of the, the journey that we're on is like, you know, as we scale and, you know, we need more and more stuff. It's like, you know, trying to scale my marketing brain to have other people being able to execute at, at the high level that we need it to be is, uh, I mean, it's a fun challenge and I think we're, we're, we're doing all right. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's tricky. Once you start setting the bar here, it just has to keep going. You can't go the other way. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, we're, we're always trying to hold ourselves to like, all right, well, the next thing we have to do has to be even more interesting or cooler. And uh, I think, yeah, we've got a lot of pretty crazy fun ideas in the works uh, uh, for, for next year. So, well, let's say I'm a kid, you know, uh, maybe a, you know, kid in their early twenties, late teens or something like that, that says, wow, this sounds really cool. I'm excited by this. Like, but I don't know anything about business or technology or finance, but this sounds cool. And I have a lot of energy. How can I get my foot in the door? Like, what would you say to that person? I would say do as much as you can on your own first to, prove something out. Because I think once you have really solid data, even if it's small, but if you've got like, you know, a Facebook page that you've been running for three months for a fake product, and now you can say, hey, my video has got a few million views, or hey, my page has more followers than Aquafina. So many more people are going to be willing to take that meeting with you now. It's like when you just come with nothing, you're kind of expecting people to really go out of their way for you when people are all busy and they're, they've got other things they're trying to do. And like, they don't have time for risk. It's like, now, unless you're like talking to your friends and family, like that's different. But if you actually want to get meetings with, you know, venture folks or investor, if you, if you can say in that meeting, Hey, here's my thing. I have a Facebook page and we've got more followers than Aquafina and we've got 3 million views and we've only spent $5,000. That's going to get someone's attention. But I think that's the thing that I've noticed with a lot of folks is like people want to have the idea and just say, okay, now I want to shop my idea around. Thing is, ideas are worth nothing. Yeah. It's all about execution. Like you need to do some of the work. And there's a lot of inexpensive ways to, you know, through social media or, you know, fuck, making your own little stand on the street doing something. Like there's ways to just start out and try to prove out 
that your idea is actually viable first. And you're just, you'll be so much further ahead of most people. What would you say to people that sort of have uh, the idea in their head that business is somehow inherently unethical or dirty or like, well, I have an idea for this thing I want to make, but I don't, you know, I don't like business. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, business has become a dirty word, but it's like, if you really think about what is business, business is just the business of selling something for more than what it costs you to make it. And that, I mean, anybody, it's like, if you're getting, if you're working somewhere, you are doing business. You know, like if someone's paying you money to do a job, you're in business. Like if you play in a band, you are a business, whether you like it or not, you are a business. You are even a small corporation from, you know, (laughs) of four people. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just like, yeah, I think most people agree that like, there's a huge chunk of big corporate business that is shitty and terrible. And I think there's an opportunity for folks like us, like nothing's going to ever change unless cool people start building cooler businesses. It's like, if you just leave business to the money people, you're just going to keep seeing businesses that are only driven by money. And that's it. It's like, if you start building businesses that are based on anything else that's more meaningful, and at the end of the day, you have to make money to sustain it. You know, nonprofits have to make money to help people. Churches have to get money from people to do things they want to do. It's like, that's always going to be a part of it. And that's very important part of it. But business can be a powerful tool for change in the right hands. That's what I would say. You know, one of the big things that I think about is for me, it was so hard for me to kind of get my foot in the door of any kind of like I worked in printing for years when I was like, 15 till I was 22, which sucks. Like printing is horrible, but I just, I didn't know how to kind of break out of that. And finally someone took a chance on me. And once they did, like then everything worked out. But, you know, as a business owner, you have the ability to take a chance on those people who slipped through the cracks of the traditional system, the people that didn't go to whatever name value school or work at the right companies and just who didn't know the rules, who are cool people with a lot of potential and passion, but just don't fit neatly into any existing slot. And as the business owner, you have the ability to really change their lives by giving them a chance that other people won't. Definitely. And I think that's kind of what we've been doing with with Liquid Death. It's like, you know, some of our strongest salespeople are buddies of mine that were like career bartenders in their mid thirties that played, played in bands and toured in bands. And like, that was just the job that they had. You know, as most people know, bartenders are the ultimate people, people. Yep. They know how to bullshit with people, all different kinds of people all day long. Every, they're everybody's best friend. And it's like, now you put that guy in a Whole Foods or a 7-Eleven or, you know, on the opposite side of the bar. It's like, they're everyone's best friend. They want to help lick sure. the death out. They want to give us better shelf facings. And it's like, they're super hungry too, because it's like, they're happy to get out from behind the bar and have like a, you know, a real direction for something and seeing like real room for growth in like a fast growing company. So they're super hungry too. And it's like, it's so cool to be able to bring them into this. And it's not just like, oh, you're doing a buddy a favor. It's like, they're actually outselling some of the beverage guys that have been doing this for, for five years. So I think, yeah, there's, there's just interesting ways to, yeah, from your, from your point, like, of who you hire and and how you build the company. Cool. Well, I'm sure you've got a full schedule, so I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, Is there anything else you want to add? Any words of wisdom for everybody before I let you go? No, man. I think we covered a lot of it. This was was fun. Great. Well, uh, I look forward to seeing what's next and uh, always happy to help if I can. Awesome. Thanks, man. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that, and you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. 
Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street.